The nature of ownership. What is ownership? Most people would say ownership is possessing what we own, and by this they would mean what is possessed is legally theirs. We own what is ours by law. In this system of things, it is the courts that have the final say. Possession, it is said, is nine-tenths of the law. That is because to take something from someone legally requires a lengthy legal process, and without good reason under the law, the courts will not take something away from the one in possession of it. This answer will suffice for most purposes, but it lacks the necessary precision needed to analyze the implications of ownership. Logics, as a study of terms and their implications, requires precise definitions. Analytics is only as good as the purity of the thing to be analyzed. Ownership, according to legalists, is a right granted under law, but a law is only as good as the ability and indeed willingness to enforce it. A boat does not belong to the owner when needed to save drowning persons. We lose all right to private supplies of food when in a boat adrift in the ocean. However, in the normal situation, no one disputes the idea of personal ownership. We each have a right to what we own for personal use. From this come such arguments as the right to have food, clothing, and shelter. The right to life is a cruel joke played on people who, when impoverished, find they have no right to the resources they need to maintain life. At some point, when discussing the law, we encounter the problem of competing rights. No one says there are people who have no right to live, other than through the justice system, but few interpret the right to life to a right to things owned by others. Those who have a right to life claim they have a right to what they need to live, even when this is in the possession of others. This creates an impasse. If one has a right to life, does this preempt the right of others to the free enjoyment of their property? Do we have a right to what we possess? If so, does this right to possess what we own extend to our life? But life needs inputs to be maintained. How does my right to my life fit in with your right to your material possessions when I need what you have to preserve my life? How can two contradictory and mutually exclusive rights both be valid? You have a right to live, but we have no right to expect others to be the agent by which your life is guaranteed. The right to life is nothing more than an injunction against theft, meaning no one can take your life or your purse from you. This being so, where does this right to life come from, and what does it actually mean when applied to physical possessions? When in a lifeboat the ordinary rules do not apply, the right to life becomes a paramount right. I have an equal right not to what is needed for life, but to what is available to all others. In a lifeboat, all human life becomes equally valuable. Ownership is transferred to the group as a whole, so as to preserve all life equally. The job of the lifeboat members is to work to achieve survival, and all assets become dedicated to this end. However, more is going on here than simply survival. If we look at Earth as a lifeboat, we are all entitled to what we need to survive. However, your getting what you need does not deprive me of what I need in an absolute sense. I cannot demand you give me what you have 
so as to ensure my life. My share of the world's resources is available if I work for it, as you work for yours. You have your share, and if I do not have a fair share, that is not specifically your fault or your responsibility. So what does ownership actually mean? Does it even make any sense if it is only a benefit granted under law? Most people only consider public and private ownership. This is aided and abetted by a media and political culture that benefits from stories about conflicts between what is owned by private persons and what is owned by the state. The most basic and elemental form of ownership, however, is personal ownership. This is our ownership of what we use as private persons in our daily lives. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the homes we live in are personally owned. Capitalists have extended this personal form of ownership into the commercial or business sphere. Amazon is viewed as a personally owned asset in the same way your lunch is. This is perverse use of the idea, to say the least. Capitalism looks at capital as a reward for delayed gratification. Instead of eating one's lunch, one saves the money and after time invests the saved up sum in a business, selling sandwiches, for example. This is called making money work for you. The sandwich business represents all the lunches that were not eaten. Few people can see anything wrong with this view of things and those that do think something is amiss probably do not understand what precisely is wrong with it. There is a clear distinction between the two forms of ownership. Personal ownership is not private ownership. Owning a sandwich is not substantially the same as owning a catering business. In one case the ownership is for immediate consumption and for the preservation of life. With private ownership what is owned is saved and ultimately invested in a way to make more money. Delayed gratification is considered a demonstration of greater maturity and self-control thought to deserve a reward. When control over one's resources reverts to the state, we call this socialism. Socialism has become a complicated term with several different meanings. Originally it meant the ownership of the means of production by the people. But this was never described technically and so over time it became synonymous with a modified communism. Communism is publicly owned resources with each person doing what they can and getting what they need. Nationalization means much the same thing as communism but it tends to be used in conjunction with individual companies such as the nationalization of a power plant. Socialist permit private owners to retain control of the means of production, but they reserve the right to draw down capital in the form of taxation. What is ownership really? On what is ownership based? Why does it exist? Is ownership natural or is it a social construct? To listen to a capitalist talk, the ownership of capital is almost a natural right and is as nothing more than an extension of personal ownership. Bezos is just the child with a sandwich on a larger scale. This is a serious mistake in categorization. The error was partly noted in the discussion regarding the purpose of private enterprise ownership as contrasted with the nature of personal ownership. But we need to make this line of demarcation even more distinct. Even though capital can be derived from delayed consumption 
This is not a prerequisite and is certainly becoming less and less likely due to the cost of starting a business and the difficulty of saving sufficient funds to start one. Personal ownership is directed towards immediate need. We notice that we cannot challenge this sort of ownership without producing incongruities. If we argue against others owning what they need to live, how can we ask for protection for what we need to live? We are in this together so far as personal ownership is concerned. Logic tells us that personal ownership is just and not easily challenged. There is justification for the idea that capital saved from delayed gratification belongs to the one who underwent the deprivation, but that a person owns his accumulated savings does not translate into his right to purchase an aquifer. Does saving money entitle a person to invest in income-producing property? Is there a moral virtue saved up along with one's pennies? It is at the point where savings translate into raw economic power that the questions as to what ownership really is arise. If we save up to purchase a house or a car, there are no questions raised about our rights to what we own. If we save up to buy interest-bearing bonds, or a rare species, or another human being, then moral questions seem to percolate up naturally, out of the transaction itself. The problems with private ownership arise because we did not accurately analyze personal ownership. We did not want to question our right to what we need at the personal level. Our complicity with capitalists and the state permitted them to take advantage of our guile. We were made accomplices to their crime by our greed. We assumed because the goods and services we have are being used to support human life that this justifies our possession of them. We all want to live, and this seems to have morphed into the assumption that desire for life gives the individual a right to his life and to that which enables him to live. But what are these assumptions based on? If we have a right to life, why are there no guarantees attached to us at birth? If I have a right to a meal, where do I get the right, and more importantly, where do I get the meal? Do I have a spiritual right to food, because I exist? If I do have this right, where could such a right originate from? The right of one becomes the duty of someone else. If the world is secular, and that means it is founded 100% in physical laws and factors, then what are principles and rights in this context? And how could any right exist, even a right to life? My right to eat something simply because I wish to maintain my existence is not a right that is easily derived from natural law. Materialism cannot provide us with any rights, not even such a basic right as the right to life. Evolutionary theory does not provide us with a right to what is needed to live, nor does empirical science give us a right to possess goods and services. Some atheists may wish to assert that our right of ownership is bequeathed to us by governments. However, this begs the question, where did the state get this right from? An agency cannot assign a right they do not have themselves. This causes us to question how people can have a right to land and other natural resources if the state has no right to these things either. What are legal rights if the state has no legitimate right? to create law.
If we look at the issues from a Christian standpoint and assume God created us and all things, we ought to be able to understand that God as creator has ownership rights over what he created. This is natural and logical to us because God is a creator and has total ownership rights. He would of necessity have the right to assign ownership rights to that which he created. As creator, he has unrestrained authority to exercise care and guidance over his creation. Regardless of if you believe in God or not, it is impossible to debate the logic of the situation. It makes sense. It does not make sense that a state would have the same authority. It is just not the same category of rights. With God, the authority is intrinsic to the relationship. With a state, the authority is more of an agreement, even to a sense of role-playing, in which the state substitutes for God and the citizen plays along to make the game work. Creation is, or resolves down to, personal ownership writ large. God's rights, as the creator of the universe, is a model on which our own personal rights are based. Christians, as the assigned caretakers of the planet, are the natural owners of the planet. God has the ultimate authority, but we are his representatives. At the same time, we can assume that abrogating one's rights by a failure to exercise responsibility could and would result in the reassignment of ownership. This prediction is found in the stories of Israel and in observing the loss of lands of some people who failed to exercise responsibility over what they were given. Ownership rights are not given without the imposition of ownership duties. This is the origin of accountability. We are accountable for what we do because ownership is not without obligations. Our rights of ownership under God are always local. As a property of God, we have a right given by necessity and divine authority to what we need to carry out our tasks. Payment for services rendered is enshrined in scripture and is a logical necessity. Even slaves are paid, though the payment is a dictated payment, not mutually determined. Scripture tells us the worker is worthy of his wages and it makes no sense to muzzle the ox because the one doing the work has to be fed. But personal ownership was never the problem. We have shifted the foundation and justification from a right to life which cannot be substantiated in either the secular or Christian belief systems to a right to what is earned. By being creatures of God, created for the joy of God, we are entitled to an individual share of the things of God. When we take a stone and create an arrowhead and use this to hunt with, the arrowhead is a personal possession. But when we use this arrowhead to obtain a bowl made by another person, we engage in trade. We know instinctively we have crossed a line, but we do not comprehend what has changed. People find it easier to protest a waterfall or tractable growth forest when it is owned by a company than they do about a child selling lemonade, though the two situations are the same, separated only by the degree of wrong done or the scale of the error. Why ought anyone have the right or power to profit from the energy contained in a waterfall? Let's assume the energy is infinite for all intents and purposes. 
due to the luck of being first to see this waterfall for its potential, or from the fortunate circumstance of having access to sufficient capital to make use of its potential, I am given unlimited access to a source of wealth that I had no hand in creating. Now there are apologists who will say the investor did put the money up, required to own this resource, but unless he or she also invests in infrastructure, the waterfall will not produce income. This is true, and no one is saying that the investor is not entitled to benefiting from his or her investment. But this investment does not include the water nor the wood of the tree, which we as humans did not create. Ownership is tied to creation. God created the universe and is its owner. He created us and owns us. He assigned the planet to us, his creation, to care for the planet. We, in this sense, own the earth and its owners or caretakers are justified in taking out our wages. But this is personal need use only, not commercial use. We did not create the stone and we ought not to benefit from the stone on a commercial level. As the creator of an arrowhead, we do have a right to the value added to the stone, but not to the core original value that God created and owns. Let's take a more obvious case. Imagine you cut down a tree. When you return the next day, someone has cut this tree into firewood. You claim the firewood because you cut down the tree, and the person who cut the firewood claims because it was he who cut the tree into firewood, he must own it. Obviously, both claims are in error, because both persons only added value to the tree. But what of the first creator? One man added value to the tree by felling it, and the other added value by chopping the tree into firewood. However, neither man created the tree. What is the creator entitled to, and how does the economy allow for the rights of the Creator to be accounted for. What if the tree belonged to a third person? Would not the two who cut down the tree and made it into firewood not have to compensate the human owner? We have said that personal ownership is not able to be contested even if it still retains a basic error that infects all forms of ownership used by man. The awareness of an injustice requires a solution private and public ownership exist because man has never figured out how to assign ownership rights properly. To do this, we need to learn how to pay people for the value they create, but not permit them to benefit from value created by others, specifically the value created by God. Ownership is predicated on authorship. We own what we create, this according to logic and God. But how to separate one from the other? Simply put, we need to create an authority representing God's claims, and this is the Church. The Church represents God as the owner of the world's natural resources. Man owns what he creates, but remember, we serve God. We, we as workers, are worthy of our wages, so the Church, in effect, pays us the value we add to the assets owned by God as administrator of the things of God. To repent and get right with God, we need to divest ourselves of the things of God. This is not just the natural world, but the things used to create wealth, that is, our commercial assets. 
These belong to the church. In the form described in the Bible, we call it an exchange for the sake of clarity. What we do is sell or donate all that is not needed for personal use to the church, or as we call it, the exchange. The church issues preferred shares as compensation for the gifts provided. These preferred shares serve as a currency for the church members. These prefers or preferred shares can be used to purchase bonds or goods and services from the exchange. Members are represented in the exchange by an account. When prefers are credited to the member, the credit column is increased. When the member purchases goods or services from the exchange, the debit column increases and the credit column decreases. In this way, we as the body of Christ are paid for what we do for the body. We are paid by the body for the value we add to the things of God. And when we make use of the value created by the members, we pay for what we get using the account we have using the prefers as a currency. For more on setting up an operating exchange, see our other podcasts or visit our website at logicalmindsonly, all one word, dot com. Thank you.